Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrenk. In many parts of the West, new development is bumping into old oil and gas fields. Probably not a good idea to put your building on top of an abandoned well. But that hasn't stopped people from doing just that. And we'll hear how National Geographic writer Mark Jenkins thought he'd never get a second chance to climb Burma's highest peak. But that was before Aung San Suu Kyi brought peace and democracy to the region. Also, can the Cowboy State become a filming location for Hollywood Westerns? Wyoming has enough of an incentive that makes us good enough to compete. And we'll talk about the Supreme Court's decision to put Obama's clean power plan on hold and hear a poem by a Wyoming poet. That's all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. Earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court blocked a major part of President Obama's climate change agenda, the Clean Power Plan. That rule, which would limit carbon dioxide emissions from existing coal-fired power plants, is now on hold until legal challenges against it are resolved. Wyoming is one of the 27 states to sue the federal government over the regulations. Our Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson joins Caroline Ballard to talk about what it all means. Thanks for having me, Caroline. So what exactly happened here? So this is a major blow to the Obama administration. And basically what happened is that the Supreme Court has put the rule on hold. It was a 5-4 decision, and the court has stayed implementation of the Clean Power Plan while legal challenges to it are resolved. So the rule is not dead. It's just on hold for now, basically. And so states involved in this litigation, including Wyoming, wanted the stay because the rule is forcing some very long-term decisions in the power sector, especially by utility companies. And those decisions mostly had to do with shutting down old, inefficient coal-fired power plants and planning to build new natural gas-fired power plants. And the argument is basically that states shouldn't have to be doing any of this until they know that there's actually something to comply with, that the rule is a sure thing. And as a refresher, what is the Clean Power Plan? Good question. It's the first ever federal rule to limit CO2 emissions from existing coal-fired power plants. It was finalized this summer. It requires dramatic emissions cuts from the power sector around 32 percent from 2005 levels by the year 2030. And the Clean Power Plan, known as the CPP, requires every state to submit its own compliance plan that will help it meet its emissions targets. And if they don't, the federal government will give them a plan, which is obviously not ideal. So um, that's basically the Clean Power Plan in a nutshell. 27 states are a part of this lawsuit. Why are there so many states challenging this? The objections generally focus on federal overreach. The argument is basically that under the Clean Air Act, the federal government doesn't have the power to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from coal-fired power plants. And then there's the so-called war on coal. The Clean Power Plan is often lumped into the rhetoric surrounding this argument, which is essentially a perception that federal actions are killing the coal industry. Many coal-producing and coal-consuming states see the Clean Power Plan as central to the war on coal and really one of the main reasons that the industry is struggling. 
what does all of this mean for coal in Wyoming? There was a lot of positive reaction in the state when the decision came down. Wyoming's coal industry and really the coal industry everywhere is going through some tough times. And so the fact that this rule is now on hold is widely seen as a good thing in Wyoming because under the Clean Power Plan, we would likely burn a lot less coal. But here's the thing. Coal is not only struggling because of regulations like the Clean Power Plan. Coal is also dealing with low natural gas prices, decreasing demand in Asia, and the industry has a lot of debt on its books. So even if the clean power plan went away, poof, no longer existed, the coal industry would still be struggling with these other factors. Okay, Lee, what is next? Where does this leave the clean power plan legally? Well, the Obama administration has expressed confidence that the rule will stand up to legal review. But the Supreme Court decision was split 5-4. So that really suggests that some of the justices have serious doubts about that plan. The state could indicate that the court's conservatives are ready to just completely throw out the rule if it ever comes to them. It's important to note that this is not the first time the court has ruled against the EPA recently. There have been two cases, one relating to the cost of mercury regulations for power plants, and another which dealt with the interpretation of air pollution to include CO2 in all contexts. So all of this could indicate that this Supreme Court is not going to go along with the agency's interpretation of the law, but In terms of next steps, getting back to your question, um, a lower court will begin hearing arguments um, in this case, the, the legal challenge brought by 27 states, most likely in June. But here's a really important point. Despite legal challenges and some very strong rhetoric from lawmakers in Wyoming and elsewhere, many states are still planning ahead, coming up with implementation plans, because ultimately the Clean Power Plan might survive legal challenges. Lee Patterson is part of our Inside Energy team. We look forward to hearing more from you as the situation develops. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks for being here. In many parts of the West, areas that are now houses and schools and shopping centers were once oil and gas fields. There's little in the way of a visible legacy, but in Wyoming alone, hidden underground, there are 50,000 abandoned wells. An Inside Energy investigation has discovered that in many communities in the region, new development is happening on top of those old wells. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports. Jeff Parsek lives in a subdivision on the south side of Fort Collins, Colorado, in a large suburban house right across the street from an elementary school. So when I told him that state records show there's an abandoned oil and gas well underneath his driveway, it came as a surprise. Bought the house in 2004 and haven't had any concerns about oil wells or anything else. Other homeowners responded to similar news about abandoned wells on their property with curses and slammed doors. One yelled, thanks for ruining my afternoon. But when I asked Parsec if the news worried him... It really doesn't. If it started to emit something, then I might. But to this point, I'm not concerned. But maybe he should be. From a public safety perspective, even a slow leak into a building can create an accumulation in the building and then cause uh, an explosion hazard. That's Teresa Watson, an engineering consultant and former energy regulator in the Canadian province of Alberta. 
Watson is quick to point out that there is a very, very small risk of an abandoned well causing an explosion. But it does happen. If a well isn't properly sealed, methane gas can travel up it and accumulate in confined spaces, like, say, a basement. Houses built on old wells have exploded as recently as 2007 in Trinidad, Colorado, and 2011 in Bradford, Pennsylvania. I wouldn't move because of it, I don't think. But what I would do is I probably would put a methane monitor in my house. But here's the thing with Jeff Parsec's well. City and state officials admit publicly that they don't actually know where it is. It could be under Parsec's driveway, or his house, or under the elementary school across the street. The well was drilled and abandoned in 1982, but it wasn't until 2005 that Colorado started requiring precise GPS locations for active wells. One way to prevent that kind of uncertainty is to make developers locate wells before anything gets built. That's what Watson recommended for Alberta when she was a regulator. The uh, municipalities have a requirement now to make sure that developers look for them and confirm that there aren't any in the way of their development, or if there are, how they're going to maintain the setback required. The setback being a 15-foot no-build zone around abandoned wells. But similar rules are lacking in most of the U.S. Mark Watson, no relation to the other Watson, is Wyoming's oil and gas supervisor. He says in the last year, several landowners in the city of Gillette and even the Campbell County government have called. But we suggested to them, say, it's probably not a good idea to put your building on top of an abandoned well. But the state says it doesn't have any jurisdiction over development near wells, and neither the city nor the county has any prohibition on it either. So ultimately, the judgment call lies with the landowner or developer. The same is true for most municipalities in the region. Broomfield, Colorado, is one exception. They've had a law in place for 15 years. Anna Bertanzetti is Broomfield's principal planner. We would require that the developer or the property owner dedicate an easement over the well site, the former well site. It has to be at least 50 feet wide by 100 feet long and have access to a public roadway. The idea is to leave room so that if the well ever leaks and needs to be fixed, a rig can access it. In addition to the dedicated easement, Broomfield requires property owners within 200 feet of the well to be notified. Burton Zetti says since local governments in the region are paying so much attention to new oil and gas development, it's common sense to look at the old, too. I think it's appropriate. And some places are starting to do that. In 2013, Fort Collins adopted rules requiring a 350-foot buffer between new housing development and old wells. Longmont and Weld County also have setbacks of 150 feet and 25 feet, respectively. But there are plenty of other places that don't have rules, even though an Inside Energy data analysis shows between 1990 and 2010, population doubled in Colorado neighborhoods near abandoned wells. The patchwork of rules also means neighbors can be governed by different standards. Recently, just outside Fort Collins city limits in Larimer County, where there are no setback or disclosure regulations, Inside Energy data journalist Jordan Werfsbrock and I went looking for an abandoned well in a snowy field. There were no markers noting the presence of a well, but there was a big flat spot. There's definitely like, this was a well site. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you'd look at this and go, oh, this is a really nice flat area for me to build my house. (laughs) And as ill-advised as it may be, in many parts of Colorado and Wyoming, there would be nothing stopping someone from doing just that. 
For Inside Energy, I'm Stephanie Joyce. When we come back, we'll hear about National Geographic adventure writer Mark Jenkins' 20-year obsession with Burma's highest mountain. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. In the 1980s, Laramie native and National Geographic adventure writer Mark Jenkins came upon an old book called Burma's Icy Mountains. It was written in the 1950s by an eccentric British explorer, Frank Kingdon Ward. Jenkins was hooked, especially when he found out that no one knew for sure which mountain was the highest in Burma. Gamlang Razi was officially measured at 19,259 feet, but neighboring Kakabo Razi, no one had ever stood on top and gotten a GPS reading of it. Jenkins became obsessed with solving the riddle. He made two attempts, 20 years apart, to summit Kakabo Razi. At a recent interview at his home in Laramie, he told me that on the first try in 1993, he corralled three good friends to go. Only problem... At that time, Burma was living under violent military control. We flew to Lhasa and decided that we would try to sneak across Tibet and then enter Burma from the far north, because this peak actually sits on the border of Tibet and Burma. They basically had a military junta that was controlling the country, and there was a lot of ethnic cleansing going on, there was a lot of killing, and so that's why we couldn't get in. But they were never able to reach the top of Kakabo Razi because they ran out of food. So we're kind of staggering along, and we stagger into this small Chinese military outpost, and we're immediately arrested. We eventually sign a four-page confession. It's all in Chinese, so we have no idea what we're signing. But in the end, they drive us north out of town, back into Tibet, um, and say, just, you know, we don't want to see you around these parts anymore. And we were set free. The friends talked for years about returning to try again. But Jenkins says it was never meant to be. Mike and I had grown up together in Laramie doing adventures, and we, we left high school early and hitchhiked across Africa and Russia. And, and in 1995, uh, he and his brother decided to do this crossing of Baffin Island. And as they were cruising across the Arctic Ocean, a bowhead whale breached underneath their boat and flipped the boat over. And all of them died of hypothermia one by one. Keith and I continued to climb and do adventures uh, despite having kind of these big holes in our hearts. 2009, Keith and I were climbing in Cody, and we were hit by an avalanche ice climbing. And I just happened to fortuitously um, be tucked under a little cupula of ice, and he wasn't, and he was hit. And, uh, 
Avalanche broke his neck. So the two people I would have gone back to Burma with were, were killed. And uh, I kind of thought that, well, this peak with, with the military junta, this region's never going to be open, so we'll just have to let it sit. But then with Aung San Suu Kyi fighting from house arrest year after year, in 2010, things started to open up, and by 2012, she was released from prison. That's the same year Jenkins met Hillary O'Neill one of the world's great mountaineers. They both wanted to find a new frontier with fewer people and less commercialism. And eventually we circled back to Kakaburazi and I said, well, I think we could try it now legally. Instead of sneaking across the bat, we could probably get permits. And she was so excited about that. So we spent two years planning. We left for Kakaburazi in 2014 with a team of six. For two weeks, they traveled across the country, now known as Myanmar, by train, bus, and motorcycle, until they reached the base of the mountain. And from there, we had to start walking. 150 miles of walking, and it's jungle walking. This is not walking across the prairie in Wyoming. To lighten their load, they left behind much of their gear and villages as they passed. Then they started the ascent and realized it was way colder than expected. So. The peak had been climbed, but it never been measured. The height had never been measured. So we sure, still weren't sure if it was the highest peak because another Wyoming alpinist team climbed a peak just south of Cacabo and said, actually, this one might be higher. So our goal was to, to find out what is the highest peak in Burma. We had team disagreements at Camp 3 about who should be on the summit team. They knew only three of them could make the trip to the summit. Team leader O'Neill thought she should be one of them. I did too, until that second to last day when we were up from Camp 2 to Camp 3 and noticed that both Hillary and Emily were feeling kind of uncomfortable with the, with the level of difficulty. What's the safest way to get to the top? And she disagreed. She said, I'm, I'm as good as you guys and I should go. And... Um, she ended up making the call in the end. She said, I'm going, and that's the, that's the way it's going to be. The next morning, it's extremely cold. The wind's going about 50 miles an hour. And she decided, no, this, this is not for me. I'm, I'm staying behind. So she and Emily stayed the behind. Que- the one question that I had was that it seemed like there had to have been some amount of the gender thing must have yeah. been able to... Yeah, I think for Hillary, she definitely felt like it was a gender issue. I don't... I, I don't feel like I thought that. I, I, for her, it definitely was. I think she might have felt that, like, okay, it's the guys ganging up on the girls because there were five of us, three men, two women. No one got much sleep that night. And the next morning, O'Neill bowed out. So the three male team members packed up and started the climb to the summit. It was treacherous and bitterly cold. Finally, I got to this high pinnacle. I'm on top of this pinnacle. I can see exactly what's left and my heart just drops because I realize, no, we can't actually get to the summit. We could reach the summit, but we'd have to do one more bivouac. But we had no sleeping bags. We had no food. We had no water. And no mountain is worth dying for. Mountains, in my opinion, aren't even worth losing fingers or toes for, really. The real trick in mountaineering is knowing when to turn around. That's the great skill, to stay alive. And I'd been carrying in my breast pocket 
for this entire expedition, a picture of Mike Moe and Keith Spencer. And I'd hoped to put it on the summit. But of course I wasn't, we weren't gonna get to the top, so I just stopped there and I took my glove and my actually mitten and scraped out a little platform in the snow and put that photo there. And uh, I felt like we'd failed to get to the top and I really wanted to get to the top, not only for my friends, but the altitude of that mountain is still unknown. So we don't know what the highest peak in Burma is, which is kind of a remarkable geographic mystery in the 21st century to not even know what the highest peak in your country is. National Geographic adventurer Mark Jenkins will be touring Wyoming starting next month, telling stories and showing photographs from his Burma expeditions. To find out when he'll visit a city near you, visit our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. Next on the show, we'll hear about how President Obama's new budget could affect Wyoming. We'll also hear a story about Wyoming's relationship with Hollywood. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. President Obama and Republicans in Congress are squaring off on the nation's spending priorities for the year. Wyoming Republicans are proving to be an especially pointed thorn in President Obama's side on the final budget he sent to Congress, as our correspondent Matt Laszlo reports from Washington. Every year here in Washington, there's a special dance that occurs between the White House and lawmakers in Congress feel free to think of it as the budget tango. Like all things policy-oriented, it's not sexy. That is, unless you're an accountant like Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi. But this year, he decided there would be no dance. Enzi and other top Republicans upended decades of sacred congressional protocol and refused to even invite Obama administration officials to the Capitol to discuss their budget numbers. I thought this would save the president a little embarrassment. In the past, every time that we voted on the president's budget, the most votes that he got, including Democrats, is one. Most of the time it was zero. So it isn't a significant budget, and holding a hearing on it doesn't do anything. Enzi is known as a policy guy, but critics say his presidential snub reeks of petty partisanship run amok. Former Democratic chair of the Budget Committee, Patty Murray of Washington State, says Enzi and other party leaders are merely hiding. Obviously they don't want any... Uh, discussion of what the priorities are for the president, and that's really unfortunate. Former Virginia Governor Mark Warner and current Democratic Senator says Enzi's decision may strengthen the GOP in the short term, but in the end, it weakens the nation. They could complain about the budget. That's their right. But for a group that complained about not doing budgets, not even to start the process in an official way, makes me scratch my head. I know it's a presidential campaign year, but it's this kind of behavior that I think the vast majority of Americans then say pox on both your houses. Enough about snubs. Let's get into the details of the president's $4.1 trillion budget. A small but powerful group of House Republicans are trying to slash the budget numbers already agreed to by congressional Republicans and the Democratic White House. Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis is a member of the Tea Party-tinged House Freedom Caucus, 
which is dead set on slashing the budget agreement reached at the end of last year by $30 billion, even though that could derail the GOP's chances of even passing a budget this year. We're, in my opinion, in a, a tough position now that those numbers have been approved uh, to compel or cajole um, our conference to bring them down. That's not stopping Lummis, though. She's even found a unique revenue-raising method, selling off what she calls surplus U.S. government properties. Lummis thinks her proposal gives her party an out when it comes to covering the new spending levels agreed to last year before Speaker Boehner left office. And I want to come to the negotiating table with honest alternatives uh, where, so I can try to get to yes. But right now I haven't seen any uh, proposals other than the ones I'm uh, coming up with. Senator Mike Enzi disagrees. I don't think that's optional. In a sense, Enzi is asking for even more than Lummis. While she wants to find $30 billion in savings at the last minute, he wants to overhaul how budgeting is done in Washington. Enzi is hoping his party can negotiate new terms during this election year. It can't be done in the same way for another four years if it isn't done now. And the reason it's important now is that we don't know who the next president's going to be and we don't know what the majorities will be after the next election. So everybody ought to be pretty reasonable on trying to figure out a way to uh, keep our country financially sound. The president's budget has practical implications on your life. It calls for a focused effort to eradicate cancer while making early childhood education more affordable and more accessible. It also seeks to double down on efforts to boost the renewable energy sector as it would hike taxes by $10 a barrel on oil. That's unacceptable to Wyoming's junior senator, John Barrasso. It's basically, it's a tax on hardworking families, which shows the president wants to make us less competitive than Russia, than Iran, uh, and it's heading in the wrong direction. Energy is a master resource, and the president is trying to make America less competitive globally uh, by proposing raising gas a gas tax of about 25 cents per gallon. I oppose it. But lawmakers from coastal regions are praising the president's vision. Here's South Florida Democrat Elsie Hastings. Something is going on with sea level rise or that needs to be addressed. And if we do not, in the future, way beyond my lifetime, but sooner than later, oh, you can expect that there are going to be serious consequences. This is an election year. While neither party is likely to see many items on their competing wish list checked off, the competing budget priorities will play a central role when voters cast ballots. Whether Enzi and Republicans overplayed their hand or whether the White House had no hand to play at all is yours to decide at the ballot box. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. And speaking of budgets, after a week of relative ease, the Wyoming legislative session is about to get a little more heated as members begin debating a number of budget bills. Falling energy prices have led to a decline of over $500 million in state revenue. The Republican majority has embarked on a series of budget reductions and borrowing from the legislature's rainy day fund to help pay for the next two-year budget. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports things could get tense. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I move that the Committee of the Whole rises to report to do so. As lawmakers vote on a variety of bills, the main event is about to begin. In the next few days, the Wyoming Legislature will look at crafting the next two-year budget with a series of bills that address topics ranging from general government operations to building projects. For the last couple of months, the Legislature's Joint Appropriations Committee has been making headlines as they've rejected Medicaid expansion cut teacher pay, cut millions across the board, and reduce spending for a number of low-income and elderly programs, this while approving matching money for UW athletics and building projects. Senate Minority Leader Chris Rothfuss is unimpressed with their work. I don't think they're judicious cuts. I don't think they're uh, well thought through. Uh, we're cutting programs that are effectively investments in the state and will lead to uh, more cost in the future. Those are never the types of cuts that you want to make. Back in December, Rothfuss thought the state had enough in savings to avoid most budget cuts. And that's why he's been dismayed by the across-the-board cuts that will force some state agencies to reduce millions from their existing budgets. And the Joint Appropriations Committee decided that they wanted to do their own 1% across-the-board cuts, and they, they just... Uh, hacked through that. They want 1% additional cuts next year, 2% cuts the following year. And there's not a rational basis to that when we still have $1.8 billion in the checking account and we need to operate a state in the years to come. The budget needs to be a vision, not just a, a random cutting spree. House Minority Leader Mary Throne. And their cuts seem to be to programs that no one has ever had any complaints about, programs that work well and don't cost that much money. Um, but they were just trying to, to get to a certain number. Both appropriations chairmen say they were trying to get spending as close to revenues as possible and then use rainy day funds to balance the budget. House Chairman Steve Harshman says they just went through the budget request by request. And then where it comes out, it comes out. And then we work a budget balancer at the end through savings. So it's not a thing of, you know, pitting K-12 against this and against road construction or UW athletics. But the state's top Republican is shaking his head. Governor Matt Mead says he's frustrated that the committee ignored many of his budget recommendations, most notably expanding Medicaid. He says by doing that, the state would have received enough federal money to hold off spending cuts. But even without that, Mead says lawmakers made cuts they didn't have to. You see the cuts that they've had to make just to avoid uh, borrowing from and paying back the rainy day fund. People understand we have to make cuts, but they're not going to understand that their sewer system doesn't work and we're still just building up the rainy day fund. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But to Senate President Phil Nicholas, it makes perfect sense. He says Wyoming's long-term revenue picture looks bleak, especially with the loss of coal revenues the state had relied on to fund education. He says if the legislature starts reducing spending now, it won't have to come back and make major budget cuts in the future. So if you say we're going to have a shortfall, if you start early, you can make major adjustments by reducing small amounts. But if you fail to take action three or four years later, you end up creating a cliff that's too large for the tax base in Wyoming to pick up. House Appropriations Chairman Steve Harshman predicts that some of the cuts won't make it to the final budget. For example, he expects pushback on the reduction of education money and literacy programs. 
Harshman says the biggest reason for not spending more out of savings now is because without the millions the state used to get from coal leases, Wyoming may be forced to use those savings to pay for schools in the future. Harshman says the discussion over whether to increase taxes to pay for education will be much more festive than the ones this year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck in Cheyenne. Switching gears, the Wild West has been ruling the box office lately, with movies like Mountain Man epic The Revenant and Quentin Tarantino's western mystery The Hateful Eight drawing crowds and awards buzz. While the scenery in those films looks a lot like what many Wyomingites can see from their backyards or through their windshields every day, neither movie was made in the cowboy state. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank has more on why that is. Quentin Tarantino's latest film, The Hateful Eight, takes place in Wyoming after the Civil War. So why don't you explain to me what an African bounty hunter's doing wandering around in the snow in the middle of Wyoming. But the movie wasn't shot here. Tarantino's production team did consider filming in Wyoming, though. Rick Young is the director of the Fort Casper Museum which includes an 1860s-era fort. They had given us a call about the possibility of using the fort as a backdrop. They did take a look at our site and determined that it wasn't going to be what they were going to be able to use. A handful of big productions have filmed in the Cowboy State. Young's museum detailed that history with a recent Hollywood in Wyoming exhibit. There's certainly been the traditional westerns that you think of, like John Wayne's The Hellfighters, Spencer's Mountain, or uh, Shane. But over at uh, Hell's Half Acre, we had Starship Troopers, you know, a sci-fi film. Welcome to the Roughnecks. Ratchets, Roughnecks! Close Encounters of the Third Kind uses Devil's Tower. So it's been an interesting, diverse variety of films that have been filmed here. And the most recent big one was Tarantino's last film, Django Unchained. What's your name? Django. Then you're exactly the one I'm looking for. His team shot the snow scenes in Jackson, but when Tarantino set his next film in Wyoming winter, he looked elsewhere. The story goes that Tarantino saw the images of this ranch down in Colorado and he fell in love and it was perfect and it was great. It was, be it was better than what he could find as an alternative in Wyoming. Colin Strickland is the film production senior coordinator at the Wyoming Film Office. The other piece is that Colorado has slightly deeper pockets than we do. Uh, they, I believe they offered up $5 million towards the production budget of this thing. In recent years, most states have launched incentive programs to get production companies to spend money within their borders. Wyoming threw its hat into the ring in 2007 with a 15% cash rebate for productions that shoot here. That's compared to Colorado's 20%. Other states range anywhere from 5 to 50% in rebates or tax incentives. Wyoming has enough of an incentive, a very smart economical incentive, that makes us good enough to compete. Strickland says to qualify, productions must spend more than $200,000 in the state and hire local film crews. That can be a challenge as Wyoming's film crew base is small and spread out. 
there's a chicken and an egg thing going on. You have to have crew before you can have industry, but you have to have industry to have crew. So that is the struggle here at the office, one of them anyway, trying to figure out how to address that balance. One way is to train new film professionals. So Strickland's office helped Central Wyoming College launch a film production program a few years back. Today, Rachel Hofer is sitting in directing class, analyzing the camera angles and sound design in a hyped up car chase scene. As far as like state-of-the-art equipment, we get to pretty much have it hands-on the first day that we're in class. I definitely think we're top-notch, especially for community college. The 22-year-old lifelong Wyomingite says she's learned a lot of skills she could put to use on a film set. But Hofer says she'll have to leave the state to give it a go. As far as film goes, there isn't really anything here for me, which I wish that there was because right now I would love that. But unfortunately, we have to kind of venture off into different places like where I'm going, Montana, or you have to move straight to L.A. Even if Wyoming will never be Hollywood, legislators like Jackson Republican Ruth Ann Petroff say it's worthwhile for the state to stay in the incentives game. We spent less than two and a half million dollars in the decade that it's been in place. The program has generated, we know, at least ten and a half million dollars in the expenses that were available to be compensated. So we certainly know it had that benefit. And aside from the money productions spend in the state, Petroff says broadcasting Wyoming's landscapes on screens big and small draws more visitors here. Tourism is the second biggest industry in the state and has increased 85 percent in the last 10 years. And we think that the film industry financial incentive program has certainly contributed to that. The program is scheduled to sunset this summer. Lawmakers will have to take action during this legislative session to keep it going. With a budget crunch in Cheyenne, the future of Wyoming's film incentives is uncertain. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. To wrap up today's show, we'll talk to art collector Jordan Schnitzer and hear a poem by Laramie poet Lori Howe. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Elodie Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. Art collector Jordan Schnitzer bought his first painting as a teenager. Since then, he's amassed one of the largest private collections in the country, 9,000 prints by contemporary artists. Schnitzer had been collecting for years when a museum asked to borrow a small part of his collection for an exhibition. And it was so exciting to see the works up in their space and the way the curator had arranged the work. I thought this doesn't get any better, but it did. And that's when people came in and they started ooing and aahing and smiling and frowning and all those things we all do when we look at art. And I thought, my gosh, as much passion as I have for the art, sharing it brought me even greater joy. And that's when Schnitzer reimagined his art collection as a lending library. So far, 100 exhibitions have been displayed at 75 museums, including a provocative exhibition by artist Kara Walker. 
It's on display this semester at the University of Wyoming Art Museum. As he tells Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, he discovered Kara Walker's art at a gallery in his hometown of Portland. And I saw this stunning, disturbing uh, silhouette, black-white image by some artist. I went over, looked at it, and read the name Kara Walker. I'd never heard of her. Didn't matter. I liked it and bought it. And then I saw another piece of hers and bought it, too. Now, I like art that either just makes you smile, art that's uh, full of colors, graphic designs, or I like art that is very intellectual and is full of themes. So for me, when I go see work in my house or office or go to museums, I see work like Kara Walker, it just pulls me away from whatever I've been involved with and takes me to another place. And that break is sort of nice. Although in the case of Kara Walker, um, she takes this genteel 19th century tradition of the silhouette portrait and brings it into this nightmarish world of, of slavery, of uh, Civil War era imagery. Um, she explores themes of race and gender and power, a lot of it very troubling imagery. Why do you think it's so important for this to be out in the world and, and viewed by museum goers? Artists are always chroniclers of our time. They push us, they prod us, they frustrate us, they make us smile and laugh. We look to them to force us to deal with issues around us. Oftentimes those are wonderful issues, oftentimes they're difficult issues. Look at the last 12 months. Look how many times we've seen now the uh, police brutality, especially towards the uh, African-American black community. Look around the world. My gosh, we are being consumed around the world with, with man and woman's inhumanity to each other. So the themes that Kara Walker talks about are themes which are more relevant February 2nd and 3rd, 2016 than they were a year ago and three and five and seven. That's why she has moved up to the level of, of respect and esteem she has is her themes are themes of our time, of today. Even though it's through the lens of, I mean, a lot of her work is very much set in the antebellum South and, and in the Reconstruction South, but it goes beyond that. You know, each artist uh, reaches inside themselves and pulls out themes uh, with intensity uh, that, that come from their background. If you look at her history, she grew up in Stockton. She was born in 1969. And when she was 13, her family moved to Stone Mountain, a suburb of Atlanta. Her father was an art teacher, took a job at Georgia State. And she lectures and writes about how when she was in Stockton, a pretty white community, she didn't really feel any racial prejudice. When she moved to Atlanta, she suddenly felt racial prejudice. And that began to sort of shape and form her into the artist that she is today. Who do you think needs to see this exhibition? Every single person on this campus, every single person in this community, every single person in this state. The only shame about this exhibition is when it finishes up in May, if every single student, if every single resident, every single school child didn't see it, that would be a shame. There's something in this exhibition for everyone, and everyone needs to see it. 
How often do any of us catch ourselves seeing someone and leaping to some stereotypical conclusion about them because of their hair, their lip, or how they talk, or how they're educated, or whatever? It's a human condition. Now, what do those of us do who are healthier? We stop ourselves right then and say, wait a second here. That's a decent human being just like anybody else. So this exhibition, in a way, forces us to confront our own assumptions, our own prejudices. Exactly. And it helps us also see history in this country through a slightly different lens. She has a brilliant series there of Harper's Weekly. Yeah, prints from the magazine from right, the right. 19th and the, century. And, and, and the Harper's Weekly was one of the, like Time Magazine today, it was a way in which, which a lot of people in this country saw images of the Civil War. And they came from a very um, white Caucasian perspective. So Kara Walker takes those images and then superimposes on top of them a lot of images of uh, African-American slaves and, and soldiers and people. And uh, very interesting juxtaposition and, and uh, tension between those two. It helps us realize, hey, uh, there are lots of perspectives to every single issue. So do you think in light of a collection like this, an exhibition like this, is art collecting political? It can be. Is it, it, can, for, it, is it for you? Uh, a lot of it is. I mean, art, art can be anything you want it to be. And, and the message depends upon that artist and the viewer. Think about this for a second. Everyone listening to this station right now has had a million different experiences. We're all made up of a million different little mosaic pieces. So when each of us sees this Kara Walker exhibition, we're bringing to it sort of a preloaded history of who we are. That's why for each of us, experiencing art is a unique experience because we're all unique individuals. And therefore, certain things that I might see that resonate with me might be different than what you see and resonate with you. Jordan Schnitzer, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your art with the world around you. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. You know, I've had 100 exhibitions at 75 museums, so I get to go to lots of museums. This community should be so proud of this facility. This University of Wyoming Museum is top-notch. The display space is incredible. There you go. There's a, there, I'm already admitting a stereotypical response. I thought, Laramie, Wyoming, okay, my gosh, out in the middle of nowhere. Incredible exhibition, incredible staff, incredible professors. That was Micah Schweitzer talking with art collector Jordan Schnitzer. out the show, we'll hear a poem entitled Superior Wyoming. It's from Laramie poet Lori Howe's debut collection, Cloudshade. Superior disappears. The narrow window of road screened with grit and snow, the exit a thin, dirty arm pointing to nine miles of nothing. Halfway up the superior road on a generous hip of land, wild horses forage amongst glazed knobs of sage. 
Bones like fan blades, they will not gallop away from food. Winter is their equation. Survival equals heat of energy in their bellies, stored. At engine sounds, they circle the colt that leans into each of them. Their eyes cut fierce holes into the powdered air, a warding laced with plea, as though their lives depend upon invisibility. Each look, each photograph, loosens their grasp on the earth. Superior hordes at solitude, all its treasures dug and hauled away, the town eluded shipwreck, bones holding upright, an exercise of being. This defiance of time and gravity, sheltered in the steeply of a box canyon, superior grows up its sides in terraces one house deep. American cliff dwellings, circa 1930. A pattern of a mining town, plain as remnant mineral tailings from the mine. Trailers, modest homes in perpetual shade at the bottom. Baronial stone mansions, like country inns, claim the sunlight and view on the topmost streets. Turrets, edge-cut granite, stained glass, beauty softened by wind and dryness. Graceful ghosts, they mimic the mines, uninhabited, no longer safe. Their foundations stretch out over the narrow shelf of rock, feet on a too-short bed. Small gardens, tangled as matted dogs, iron gates open as dumb mouths. Windows scoured by dust, clarity stolen by too much wind. These houses cannot be shored up against erosion. They will be dismantled, stone by stone, or tumble, impotent, into the lesser dwellings of the town. In warm months, tourists dawdle up the road with their cameras, snapping the gutted miners' hall, eating sandwiches in the small green park. In winter, Superior is colored with quiet, Blue coal smoke speaks softly. Doors leak scents of rosemary and onion, and the town breathes slow and deep under the comfort of snow, as though at the center of the canyon floor, safely underground, a great furnace, hot enough to temper glass, feeds everything above it. That was Laramie poet Lori Howe reading her poem, Superior Wyoming. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of our program or want to hear a segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. You can listen to the show whenever you like when you sign up for our podcast, either on our website or on iTunes. We'd appreciate it if you would both rate and comment on the podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to become a fan of our Wyoming Public Radio Facebook page. And for breaking news and other information, you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.